How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I love a kaftan. Just got back from Marrakesh. Bought a few kaftans. Well, I'm up in the attic and it's been quite a hot day. So one, I don't think I should be in sweats, as I think the Americans call it. And two, I'm, I'm, I'm sweltering, but I'm happy. So hello, welcome to the Wellbeing Lab. Will here, still going strong. Today, we're gonna to be talking about eating disorders to Dr. Amara Nassim. I don't know much about eating disorders and I always like it when I can come to a conversation with genuine ignorance and curiosity. I think it's a really, really great chat. Now you might recognize the name because Dr. Amara Nassim was involved in the Freddie Flintoff documentary on BBC about bulimia, which was really good. And I also, I think it's important to say, we don't talk about or use any specific language, but people that may be experiencing eating disorders might find this a bit triggering. So I wanted to say that. Please enjoy the interview. My name is Dr. Romana Nassim. I'm a counselling psychologist and I'm a specialist in treating eating disorders. And I'm particularly interested in working with minority communities, being from that background myself, but just generally working with people who are a bit underrepresented and in society interests me as well. How do you go about that, actually? How do you go about then finding people, you know, who are perhaps maybe find it harder to find help or aren't so forthcoming or, or whatever? It's difficult, you know, and I think working creatively is a way to do it, to try and use social media in a creative way that will reach different groups, you know, using it in a productive way um, to engage with different groups, um, training, going to different events, linking in with different groups, listening to those minority groups as well and thinking where are they going to access things and what events do they go to and where do they go to, to get help? You know, that as well, that's super important. So where are they likely to present? You know, what are we missing in terms of picking up those groups to help them seek help? And I think, you know, the NHS is so strained at the moment, but that's work that can be done there as well. So the, where are the referral points and how do we reach those groups of people that need help? You know, because often they can't afford private therapy. So I'm also aware of that too. So is it harder for certain people to come forward with eating disorders? So is it something that certain cultures would not come forward and talk about it or people from different backgrounds? We definitely do see an underrepresentation of the BAME community. 
and I would say the LGBTQI plus community as well are underrepresented in NHS services and in other services as well. We definitely know these people are out there suffering, men as well, people from different backgrounds, whether it's to do with culture, religion, shame, stigma, reluctance in seeking help, maybe for thinking that they're not going to get taken seriously or what's the point or men especially, you know, they have such a struggle in lifting the lid and just getting help or admitting they have an issue and seeing it as a weakness, eating disorders or invisible illnesses that affect everyone, anyone from any background, culture, socioeconomic, race, class, whatever, gender, sexuality, they're indiscriminate, you know, so people are out there suffering and I don't want anyone to think that they shouldn't be getting help or they're not going to get taken seriously, it's just, it should not be the case, you know, there's ways to get help. So the two that I eating disorders that I know of are bulimia and anorexia. Before we go into those two, like, are there other eating disorders? Yes, yeah. So they're the two major ones that people mostly know about. So you're not alone with that, Will. There's binge eating disorder as well. People binge. There's EDNOS, which is now known as OSFED, which is an acronym for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder, which basically means it's a cluster of Symptoms that belong in the other categories, but it's like a mixture of them. So there's a range of eating disorders for sure. Yeah. And what would define anorexia and what would define bulimia? So anorexia is defined by being a BMI of less than 17.5 and restriction is the symptomology we look at there. So somebody will be restricting in order to influence their weight and shape and size will be very preoccupied with thoughts about this they'll present with a fear of fatness and weight gain and um, women often they have lost their periods as well and they could also be binging and purging and that's a subtype of anorexia so it's characterized by restriction but there's also there can be vomiting um, and there can be over exercise in there and there can be binging as well so there's different types of anorexia as well and bulimia is when somebody's not significantly underweight, like in the case of anorexia, so the BMI is generally less than 18.5, and they have to be objectively binging on average twice a week for the last three months. And they engage also in extreme compensatory behaviors. So that could mean vomiting. It could mean laxative misuse. There's also restriction in there as well, so fasting. It could mean using diuretics. So what we see now is quite trendy and using like uh, things like detox teas and diuretics in that sense, medications, excessive exercise, those are extreme compensatory behaviours used on average twice a week in the last three months. And they will also have an over-evaluation of their weight, fear of fatness and a fear of weight gain. Another thing that's quite prevalent in minority communities as well is steroid abuse. That's another way of engaging in a compensatory behaviour that's designed to influence weight or shape. Really? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so interesting to hear those things like a tea. It sounds very sort of innocuous and yes. you know, simple, like, oh, a detox tea or something. But are there teas that have diuretics sort of put in them or, or maybe in something that Yeah, might... like natural properties, which essentially can make you go and pee a lot. And people will get obsessed with weighing themselves after that or thinking it's leading to weight loss. Or detox teas that give you a laxative effect. And some of them probably do have some of those agents in them. Yeah. Um, but there's also natural substances that can do that and are, and are, you know, designed to make people go to the loo more. So that can obviously be misused, you know, in, in the wrong hands or in someone's hands who is driven by these sort of symptoms. Absolutely. And 
you know, the marketing industry is clever and how they market things to us. So it has to seem like, um, oh, this might just help me get healthy, but it can also be, you know, misused. Yeah. And so with those two main eating disorders, is the treatment largely the same? They differ. What tends to be used for binge eating disorder presentations, so whether it's a binge eating disorder or someone who's binging with bulimia, or sometimes even with anorexia, but the binging um, is quite prevalent with them. So it depends. The clinician will assess the person and see what's the most suitable treatment depending on their presentation as well. So generally rule of thumb is for a binge eating disorder binge presentation, it will be cognitive behavioral therapy tailored for eating disorder treatment. So you're looking at focusing on the symptomology, the symptoms of their eating disorder. So, you know, the thoughts, behaviors, feelings, and how things come together, but it's not general CBT. It's very focused on eating disorders. There's also the first line of help for bulimia nowadays. And with the NHS, I believe as an intervention while people are waiting on the wait list for treatment is doing guided self-help. So it's like a shorter following a guided self-help protocol book with a practitioner, but they'll get short calls and check-ins every so often for 20 minutes. And usually in about a month or six weeks, somebody knows whether that's helping them or not. And sometimes that's often a good intervention in itself. And if not, then CBT individual therapy or group therapy that helps people with bulimia or binge eating disorder. And with anorexia, there's a, the Maudsley model of treatment for anorexia nervosa in adults. And CBT can be used as well. That mantra is the acronym that that's shortened to. That's in the NICE guidelines. And that's the one that I particularly like to use with people with anorexia who present with that disorder. And there's a manual that we use to guide that treatment. But treatment always involves understanding the individual function of the disorder for the person, addressing like the, the course kind of psychopathologies, it's like the traits that people have in common that present in an eating disorder of that nature, addressing their behaviours, nutritional advice from the get-go, it's super important, and relearning healthier strategies and ways to manage their emotions and behaviours. Essentially, the behaviour, whether it's eating, not eating, exercising, purging, they're all ways to deal with a feeling or something that's going on underneath it. It's like that's the, the symptom. You know, if we frame it, people usually find it really difficult to relate to and understand because food is something we all need. But if we frame it in the context of if someone's, you know, using drugs or alcohol in that way, we tend to understand better now, I hope, that there's a pain as an escaping from a numbing or avoiding Yes, it's the same, you know, that behavior is doing something and we have to understand the function. And really, I like to look at each individual and think, well, what's happened that's making you cope in this way? What do we need to help you with? It's interesting, actually, because just hearing you say that, what just came up for me was with something like alcohol or drug abuse. Often the thing is, and I'm not saying this is easy. Don't go there anymore. You can't go there anymore. You're an mm -hmm. addict. People have to go there for food, don't they? So if food is their choice of a way of managing, avoiding emotional pain. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a very different thing, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because we can't go without food or the restricting is the way that someone's managed to cope. So actually it's learning to feel safe in your body again for some people. You know, it's learning to feel at home and safe within yourself and therefore doing these behaviours and eating in a way that feels safe and okay again. You know, it's a very difficult thing, recovery in an eating disorder, because you have to do everything that's counterintuitive to get well and get better. 
so often it's the thinking of it like a lot of people will talk about having this like eating disorder presence or voice and then differentiating between eating disorder thoughts and behaviors and that their healthy thoughts and behaviors and self is there somewhere but that's usually like really kind of withered and diminished compared to the eating disorder part of them when they come in for help and it's about you know shrinking the eating disorder part and really building and nourishing the healthy part in order to tackle behaviors and learning to eat more for example someone is going to feel anxious as they start to do it so we know that road is difficult so it's also preparing them for that and helping them to manage how are they going to feel anxious what do we have to do that helps you feel safe you know during that experience or you know we, we have to go through the difficult thing in order to build resilience in, yes. in the body and the mind and the system so a dysregulated nervous system is what's going to happen and we have to learn to regulate it again in therapy as well with different tools and often i hear people say that eating disorders can be because someone feels a lack of control it's a way of getting control back would you say that's true yeah. It's very common. I hear a lot of people definitely talking about this in and out of control feeling, for sure. In the documentary I did with Freddie, um, when he was talking about feeling in and out of control, it was very prominent there. And it's very binary, black and white, all or nothing thinking. It definitely presents a lot more a negative thinking style that's very much prevalent in that realm of eating disorder thinking. And I would say it's like a, a symptom of the eating disorder, you know, because the sense of being like, in control or out of control it's only achieved using disordered behaviors you know like the sense of feeling in control is also like probably using those behaviors and having a false sense of in control because inevitably you fall out of control so often it's the over control the restriction that leads to the sense of the out of control happening and it's actually the continuum and all the gray in between that you have to teach people to to navigate Actually, yes. you know, there is all the screen in between. And how do we start to see that bigger picture and focus on that? And the documentary you mentioned was with Freddie Flintoff, yes. um, which was just so brilliant. So if people haven't seen it, do watch it. How often does an eating disorder come from, you know, maybe body shame? I don't like the way I look. I want to lose weight. So it starts that way. So I'll, I'll just sort of, you know, restrict compared to something is going on maybe a trauma you know or, or some emotional unbalance which is does that make sense yeah of course it does yeah but I'm just thinking particularly of young people and their you know and body image and things like that you know there's no one cause of an eating disorder so we know it's multifactorial it's a severe mental illness genetics do play a part in it like whether there's a predisposition to cope or use food in this way mental health history in the family can be relevant as well and an assessment you take all these factors into it also life experience, you know, what have we been exposed to? What experiences have we had growing up? Do we have bereavement, trauma? Do we have any severe things happen? But also not just severe, not just trauma in the sense that we think of something really terrible, single event happening, but how we've come to make sense of ourselves in the world, how we learn to relate to ourselves and our bodies. So often something like growing up feeling different or being bullied a little bit, or just that sense that I'm different from other people, can be internalized in a way that's very negative and therefore then that sets this core belief about itself that I'm not good enough or there's something wrong with me and then these little bits of things that happen through life breakups stress transition can accumulate and we start to form ideas about ourselves. or you know there's lots of factors and layers to how yeah. someone could develop an eating disorder and a distorted sense of self 
and this negative self-comparison as well, which is super common in eating disorders and happens a lot. And then that ultimately could lead someone to, you know, using these behaviours as a way to cope or restricting because they're anxious and it makes them feel better for a bit. And quite often what I've heard on lockdown is, especially with younger people, is that their intention was just to get a bit healthy. So what did the government let us do? For a little bit, we were allowed out to walk or to exercise. So people thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to get some exercise in, eat healthy and do those things. And then they lost a bit of weight and then they got, you know, reinforcement. Like you look great. You know, that thing that everyone does that you look wonderful. And then people think, oh, great, I'll keep going. And they lost more weight and they lost more weight and become more obsessive with the behaviours. Boom, like it was a short, sharp dip into an eating disorder. That's happened a lot for the youth now. Well, that's interesting because I was going to mention, I remember someone who I knew and this person was only drinking one small carton of orange juice for kids. So the restriction seemed you know, quite a lot for me. And the person was losing a lot of weight and people were coming up and saying, you look great. But then I also remember I had a real insight because I thought, God, it must be so difficult for that person because if that's really lodged in their head mm-hmm. that they want to lose weight and the only way that's going to happen is by complete restriction, how are they going to get out of that? Because it's that's, that's like a real mindset, isn't it? Yeah, and then the reinforcement and then actually well, it makes them think, well, did I not look good before? And this is where the over-evaluation of weight and shape and appearance comes in as well. So actually they get that reinforcement and then they think, oh, well, yeah, that's good. I look good like this. And then it becomes the aim. And then it's like, well, how do I maintain this? Inevitably, it's not maintainable. It's not sustainable what they're doing, the pronounced restriction. Also with restriction, what happens is the brain actually changes and it shrinks. Really? I've got this really beautiful handout that was done by the NHS team. And it shows an MRI scan of a starved brain and a brain that's healthy and is getting the right nutrition. So when it shrinks and comes away and shrivels, essentially, it changes the brain function. It changes your ability to think and feel what you do feel, what you don't feel. So everything that you feel that's negative is much more prevalent and pronounced. And actually the rigidity and the inflexibility that happens when someone becomes more starved as well is also there and the brain changes. So this is why nutrition as well is such a key and important factor to get in there early with nutrition and in therapy. You know, always set a food goal and a psychological goal for their homework in between. You've got to get in there with the nutrition. So this is why actually someone eating more also gets them to think clearer, better, Mm. engage with life and change their behaviours. The more starved someone becomes, so that person that you observed, maybe the more unwell they became, the more difficult it was for them to deal with change or doing anything different or being out of routine becomes really difficult for people there's physiological changes that correlate with that too you know so actually it gets easier for someone when they start to eat more we're stopping for an advert have a listen and we'll be back in a bit Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I haven't asked you actually about gender. Are there sort of percentages on how many men have it, women have it? You know, it's really tricky to pin down exact stats on men. Beat are doing quite good research and trying to get that. Beat, the UK leading eating disorder charity, they got a rise in number of males under 18s since lockdown. There was a huge rise in the number of under 18 males and a 90% rise of young men seeking help with eating disorders last year. So that's what they seem present in their helplines. Wow. I think that was after COVID, there was a huge spike, especially in the under 18s. So around about 1.25 million people suffer with an eating disorder in the UK alone. Um, and that's just from people who they've been able to, you know, survey and get a hold of. I'm sure there's a huge amount of people who haven't, you know, been counted in that. And that's probably a lot of people in the minority community, people who worry about stereotypes of seeking help and what help they're going to get. Is there a stigma that comes with it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there is massively. Like people think that it's a disorder for women. People think uh, it's self-inflicted. You know, it's not a phase. It's a severe mental illness. It's a psychiatric illness. You know, it's a disorder of the thoughts and mind as well. You know, we tend to focus on the food and behaviours, but it's mentally in there and thoughts as well. You know, this is where it originates from. So actually helping people understand that, you know, the stigma around, well, I should just be able to get over it or I'm not sick enough or this is something I'm doing to myself. So why do I'm ashamed? I don't want to go get help or it's like my dirty little secret and I've done it for years on the sly and maybe I'm not as unwell as other people or that classic come back to I'm in control. I'm in control. So I know how to handle this or I know how to live with it. Well, actually, if you're struggling in any shape or form, you know, go get help. It doesn't matter what you think that way, but if you identify with anything or you know you're using food in a certain way or calorie counting or just generally struggling or even with your body image or self-esteem you don't have to live that way you know it can be changed it makes me think also and it's just come up when I was hearing you that I might notice people who I think might have had quite a dramatic drop in weight and I don't know if I'd say something or not I like to think I would now actually but I can think of times when I've seen people who I would count as friends And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure this person's really looking. But then I'll come away from the party or whatever it was and go, oh, so-and-so was looking a bit thin. I'm like, why don't I ask the person? I don't want to offend them. It's quite cultural, isn't it? Because we don't go up to each other and go, oh, you look thin, are you all right? Because somebody could be sick or, yeah. I suppose people's appearances are maybe a delicate area. I mean, I know I spoke to a friend earlier and couple of her friends have done a diet I'm not a huge fan of diets by the way but and she was like god they're kind of pushing it on me and then she was like god I got to the point where I was like I put on loads of weight or something you know we were (laughs) laughing about it but I guess actually people's appearances are such a sensitive yeah but maybe there isn't anything wrong with pulling someone aside someone did it to me once actually how did you receive it well to be honest I would say I wasn't eating because of my job I Mm. was definitely restricting Mm. because television would put on some weight 
you know everyone mm. says the camera puts on how many pounds or whatever it is and I definitely got too skinny and mm. I remember someone saying oh are you all right because I saw you on whatever it was and I, they said god you did look very skinny and I don't think I would have said anything I'd be like yeah I'm fine but actually the reality was I would never eat if I was going on television it was all about the stomach for me I wanted complete mm. flatness in my stomach I didn't want even a bump you know what I mean yeah I think I almost sort of had not body dysmorphia but I did feel like I was fat but I wasn't you know I look back at pictures now and I'm like oh my god you're so skinny so you know I can relate I mean I, I would say I got into bad eating habits and didn't mm. eat as much and then it just sort of became a habit and you see uh, everything through that lens when you're in it yeah. yes so here's the thing I remember a friend of mine's daughter had anorexia they got very ill mm. and a specialist said to them get out of the food game and I think what the specialist meant by that was and I hear this from people sometimes is if their child is you know not eating or even a partner is that they'll sit and stare at meal times and the parents will be like you've got to eat that or you know are you not eating that how do families or partners of people that have food disorders because they probably need to be educated on how to be yeah that's a great point I'm really glad you brought that up because parents and people around you care and they're just trying to do what they know how to do so often that's coming from a place with great intentions yeah but it's not the right type of help that person needs yeah so that's exactly what they probably meant like get out of that game get out of doing that behavior so family therapy is also offered a lot of the time to people in the NHS system too especially with the younger adolescent community that they get offered family therapy to help think about what's going on at home the type of support but me working with adults and young people it's imperative as well to involve the people who are caring for that person whether it's a teacher whether it's a loved one a sports coach a parent partner sibling the you know the usual whoever's at home and is your go-to person or a flatmate I will say to the like we have to educate that person on how to help you so let's bring them in and we have joint sessions too you know and that support will change they might need intensive support in the beginning is it helpful if they prompt you at meals or is it helpful if they portion it in the beginning or is it helpful that we just sit and talk about anything other than food together you know as we eat and then we go for a walk after so then you know how to support that person often loved ones are great as well for coming into therapy to talk about how they notice distress in the in the person that they care about before they even know they're distressed. So there's really good advice and collaborating. You know, it's really important to get that person's, you know, support system and network involved in the treatment to understand that their support lies in the sessions outside. They see me for 50 minutes each week. It's all the in-between where they're getting that support. And that will change accordingly, the better they get, you know, or if there's lapses, what do we do? We don't panic. We have a plan. Yeah. So it's, it's a really good point. Yeah, that people do need to be taught how to help. If you had a magic wand and you could sort of wave it, do you have things that you think, oh, God, if only they had more food education in school or if only they had, you know, if only Instagram never existed and there were no filters, you know, are there things that you think could at least bring down the risk of people going towards eating disorders? Sure. It's tricky. It's tricky to, to answer, you know, thinking about how they develop you know, one thing. Yeah. I, I think, obviously, thinking about things that you said, practical things that probably could be done, yeah, is, I think, mental health education. And education about emotional health should begin when we're young, in school. There should be space for that now, you know, being able to talk about how we feel, being able to raise our hand and say we're struggling with something, you know, proper education about eating, 
how that would look I'm not sure you know because I'm even thinking of people from different cultures and backgrounds and how we eat at home is it, that's where we learn you know about food and what's good but I guess general nutrition and a rhythm of eating and how to eat and making sure we're meeting our needs but I think this education around talking about mental health and how we feel is super important in kids and young people and getting it in early in school it's astonishing that we don't have classes on I mean we sit there and learn about burning magnesium strips <laughs> I mean maybe maybe they don't still do that I might show my age but I would rather forego the magnesium strip for like weekly classes on just very simple you know emotional education it just makes sense yeah and lift that lid on stigma shame you know we want to dissolve that and make it normal this is why doing things like this is so wonderful well with your platform as well like to be able to talk about stuff and say look we all have mental health we have physical sports and education you know that's thrown on us at a young age but actually you know our mental health that inner world and that well-being is also just so key and integral into how we we go into healthy young adults and function in society but also i would add in like some education on social media use that's a huge part of what I do now in my work, especially with younger people. You know, there's a healthy way to use social media and there's an unhealthy way. So apps and things and algorithms and they're targeted. So you have to be careful and think about how you're using things, what apps you're using, what you're looking at and setting healthy time limits. And actually an education around that. I could go into a wormhole here on about dopamine and neurotransmitters and how that sets us up, you know, and in attention and things so actually I think social media use the education around that needs to be somewhere in our system as well for young people. That's a very interesting point actually about algorithms because sometimes I can give an example for Instagram so let's say if something comes up I mean I tend to follow things that just spark joy so it tends to be rescue animals ducks that walk fast it's that specific and piglets and I'm loving it and then what comes up on like reels or things are like mostly animal things so when I look at what comes up I think oh okay so I've obviously been looking at a lot of animal things but let's say if I've suddenly seen I'll give an example I've seen an advert for new men's pants and I think oh he's quite handsome I click on the model and then suddenly I'm seeing a whole ream of model-esque men in pants and that's not good for me because I don't find it that healthy to sort of be sexualizing people and sort of you know it, it's other people it's healthy for them it's not so healthy for me but then suddenly all the reels will pick up on an algorithm of something that I've done that isn't healthy for me but it's starting to be pushed more and more right that's right and that's what it's designed to do to fish hook you in to start clicking yourself down a rabbit hole and that's yeah. it if in a moment of fragility or vulnerability you yeah can, you know vulnerable that is so people can click on something innocuously or just you know like, oh I'm clicking on this thing and it suggests another and another so actually healthy limits and tidying up your feed only following things that bring you joy is wonderful yeah and to detox that feed it shouldn't be anything food and weight related it shouldn't be anything that makes you feel bad just stuff that makes you feel good take a wee bit of retraining when an algorithm suggests something on Instagram you can click now you know like that it's relevant I enjoy it I don't want to see it just click it's irrelevant and I guess final thing is if people are listening and they are you know engaged in restricting and they haven't sought help yet how can people go about that so even if you think any of this resonates or you're just thinking about food and you're doing some behaviors that feel a bit odd or off or you're hiding some behaviors or anything eating disorders thrive in secrecy so please just speak to someone don't wait the earlier you get in there the better we know that okay I would say first protocol is your GP speak to your GP and ask them for a referral tell them what you're struggling about 
take someone if it feels too difficult write down what you're struggling with if you think you're going to get emotional and not be able to convey your message so gp ask for a specialist referral if that's not possible and sometimes sadly it's not asking for what else is available in your area looking into private therapy is another option for people and also beat the leading uk eating disorder charity has a search finder on there to look for therapists and has lots of information and support online and different forms of support that they give people as well who are in that predicament maybe they're waiting for therapy or they just need a signpost or some help oh thank you i've really enjoyed our conversation i've learned so much really i'm glad well thank you yeah. very much it's been great That was Dr. Amara Nassim. What a lovely person. Very knowledgeable, obviously. And I learned a lot. First of all, I didn't know there were more than two eating disorders. And particularly post-COVID, the rise of under-18s, you know, young men. That was astonishing and rather worrying, I thought. Um, Let me know. Esme's barking. Esme, you can't get in touch. You don't know how to email. Your little claws tapping away. Get in touch and let me know what you feel. Well, we put a call out on social media about your experiences with eating disorders and you've been in touch. First of all, hi. I would firstly like to thank you for using your podcast to talk about and raise awareness of eating disorders. I've had an eating disorder since the age of 12. My illness began as undiagnosed binge eating, but later at the age of 17, it changed form and I was diagnosed with anorexia. I had what I know to be a rare experience of being diagnosed with the illness even when I was still within a healthy weight range. It's sadly commonplace for people to struggle to receive a diagnosis without being deemed underweight by their BMI. Although I received a diagnosis early in my battle with anorexia, I've been suffering with my relationship with food, my body and depression for many years. I first needed to be hospitalised for my illness in 2005 and have sadly gone on to need a number of other lengthy hospital stays. Since 2005, I've spent more time in hospital than not Anorexia has stolen everything from me, oh gosh. People think of eating disorders solely being about food and weight, but I can assure you that there isn't a single part of my life which hasn't been negatively impacted by it. I'm 36 and because of how severe my illness is, I still sleep in my childhood bedroom. I don't have a job, have few friends. I'm unable to have children. I have severe osteoporosis and have broken a number of bones and have a number of other physical health problems. Although I'm under the care of an eating disorder service, the care I receive is sadly just there to ensure I'm kept alive. I'm repeatedly told that I'm treatment resistant and my chances of recovery are so small that they just focus on medical stabilisation. I wish I was able to send an email full of hope, but it's sadly not my personal experience. I encourage everyone who is worried about either themselves or someone they care about to talk. Beat Eating Disorder Help Service are fantastic and the earlier help is sourced, the greater the chance of living a life free of what is a nasty, controlling, manipulative illness. Sending love to anyone struggling. I just want to say that I think that is the most incredible message we have received to date. Not that we're keeping school, but I know that from what you said that you are in a really, really tricky situation, to put it mildly. And I just want you to know that I think it's so brave and incredible that you've just shared your story. I think that is actually remarkable. So thank you so much, Amy, and I really appreciate that.
Another message. Dear Will, your podcasts have helped me make sense of a lot of things and the narcissist one in particular really helped me forgive myself for getting involved with one such person and for the effects it's had on me since. Also, recovering from ACE trauma and having therapy, your podcasts keep hitting the spot and help me see that I can do this and I'm not alone. This is brilliant. I'm interested in how the body reflects our trauma and remembers it. I keep reading about somatics and how this can help release trauma held inside us. Yes, have a listen to Vijay Rana, our episode with him in somatic therapy. Um, I've been trying cold shower therapy and have built up a whole song in freezing water. Wow, <laughs> to a whole song in freezing water. That's amazing. I could do five seconds and that's just a squeal like a piglet. Uh, that's amazing. And this person says meditation has helped yoga and being out in nature. I'm persevering with the feelings of being stuck. Oh, I know that one. And working my way around, changing my life for the better. Well done. Someone's been in touch. Hi, Will. I've wanted to get in touch a few times now. And the more I listen, the more I feel I need to. I'm finding your podcast so interesting and I'm learning a lot along the way too. I'm a support worker for small women's charity based in Great Yarmouth. And many of the ladies I support have mental health challenges. So every one of the podcasts I've listened to relate to someone I work with. I'm very excited for your podcast on eating disorders as I believe my 10-year-old daughter has one. I also believe she has body dysmorphia, so I'm in the process of getting her some much-needed support. We have done an episode on body dysmorphia, so do listen to that if you haven't caught that. I feel completely helpless, but I'm pushing to get her the support she needs, but it's such a battle with her being so young. I also struggle to understand how she can't see how beautiful she is. I took her to our GP a year ago and was told that it's just a phase and she's just being fussy. But as her mother, I knew it was more. Almost a year on, things haven't got any better, and she's commenting on the way she looks now grabbing small pieces of skin between her fingers and telling me she's fat. I've taken her back to the GP and asked for a different doctor who at first belittled what I was saying and told me I was wrong if I thought she would be picked up for an eating disorder at 10 years old. He weighed and measured her to see quite a decrease in weight since our last visit in June 2021. So he finally understood my concern. My daughter has been for a blood test today to rule out any physical illness. Fingers crossed someone can help us. What I find absolutely crazy is the fact they're so quick to brush it under the carpet and wait until we're at crisis point. I understand she's young, but I can't see how things will improve if she doesn't get the right support now. I've found a local charity offering a six-week course to talk about body image, food and social media. Well done. That's amazing. What a great mum you are. Thank you for taking the time to read my email. It's my pleasure. Bloody well done. You're doing brilliantly for your daughter and doing the right thing. Thank you, everyone, for getting in touch. Thank you for your honesty. I honestly think that is courageous. By sharing your story, you you really are helping others. So I hope all of you feel that. And I do believe you display a certain amount of wellness by sharing your story. So thank you, all of you. You're amazing. Get in touch. Email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com. Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab. Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, we're going to be doing chronic pain with Dr. Alan Fires. So I'll see you then. Take care. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.